My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Zoe Blunt. A key goal of a lot of movement building is to find ways to allow ever-increasing numbers of people to combine their individual moments of resistance and refusal into expanding collective efforts to create change. Despite the importance of such a focus, however, it is also important not to forget that even a relatively small collective can accomplish far more together than as individuals. The miracle of human cooperation, you might say. Blunt is a member of a group that illustrates that point, the Vancouver Island Community Forest Action Network, or VicFan. They're a small collection of radicals on the West Coast who have used direct action, the courts, participation in government consultations, fundraising, and a variety of other tactics to, as she puts it, punch above their weight, end quote, in opposing ecologically destructive, profit-driven developments of various kinds, especially most recently pipeline projects, and very often in active solidarity with the indigenous nations whose unceded lands are colonially called British Columbia. I talk with Blunt about the history of the group, some of the key actions they've taken over the years, and their most active current campaign supporting the indigenous Unistoten camp that is currently blockading the route of a pipeline planned to go from the tar sands to the coast through Wet'suwet'en territory in northern BC. I spoke to Blunt by Skype to phone from Vancouver Island. I'm Zoe Blunt. I'm a director with the Forest Action Network. I'm an environmentalist here in British Columbia on the west coast of Canada and we have been campaigning for some years now to stop the pipeline, to stop the tar sands from coming to the west coast and to stop LNG ports from being driven through indigenous land where they don't want them. So we have a lot of projects on the go right now. It's a very interesting time to be an environmental activist in British Columbia. Forest Action Network has been working on the island here for about seven years now. We formed mainly as a local group, and so we're very small. It's a small group, but we, I think, punch above our weight, kind of. You know, we um, are more effective, I think, than some groups that are larger, just because all the resources that we bring in go to the campaigns, go to our projects. So we've uh, fought for Indigenous heritage on Vancouver Island. We've done a lot of work with protecting land use values, protecting wilderness. And we've gone to court to stop illegal developments or to challenge bad decisions. And we've done direct action. We've supported direct action in the form of tree sits and other blockades like the one that's going on now in northern BC. And this is a big project. People are supporting this from all over Turtle Island. The Forest Action Network started because of a call for help from indigenous people here on the South Island a sacred place was under threat by a developer. They were going to build a highway interchange through this area and develop this mountain called Spa S. And we succeeded somewhat in stopping that. It was a long battle. We had a 10-month-long blockade, a tree-sit blockade. The issue was the mountain has sacred caves, caves that have been used for thousands of years for ceremonies and spiritual purposes. 
and the mountain is full of graves of indigenous people. It's a very sensitive place. It was a really awful project that we put ourselves in the path of. So what we found was when we established this camp to block the development the highway, then people started coming around, and it was just a, a really wide range. You know, So we had retirees who lived right in the neighborhood and kids who used to play on the hill there from the nearby school, and then, yeah, a lot of students. The students became very interested because it's a, it's a great intersection of indigenous culture and political resistance and development pressure, land use. So it was worthwhile for study. So there was a lot of people studying it. And then there were people who felt strongly that there's something very wrong with this society, with this civilization that allows these things to happen, that encourages these things to happen. And so they were very drawn to this direct action sort of struggle because they see that this is different. This is not the same thing that environmentalists usually do, which is to make petitions and to you know, go to the public hearings. We were thrown out of the public hearings. We were not allowed to speak at the public hearings. So people saw, I think, how flawed the process was, and they were really inspired to see a group, a group of nobodies, standing up to these big bullies, because these people are the big bullies here on the South Island, and uh, I think it really inspired people to see us stand up, even though they didn't think we would win. And they were kind of surprised when we almost sort of did, right? And we did not succeed 100%, but we fought the developer, and he went bankrupt eventually. So it's stalled. <laughs> the door is still open to preserve those places. And that's so important. It may not be a total victory, but if we can keep the door open, then there's still the possibility of a peaceful resolution that doesn't destroy heritage. That's what we're fighting for. Tell me more about some of the other things that you got involved with after that initial struggle. A lot of the pressure that's coming on land and development on Vancouver Island and on the West Coast in general and probably everywhere is privatizing former forest lands and selling them off for real estate. So we have a lot of waterfront. We have a lot of really beautiful places here that have been preserved as forest lands. And then they are taken away and sold to real estate developers without consulting with First Nations whose territory it is. And this is unceded territory. They haven't signed any treaties. Or if they have signed treaties, then these treaties are being violated. And so they have an obligation to consult with First Nations and the developers and the government were not doing it. Or if they were doing it in just in the most, you know, <laughs> non-existent way, you know, just an outline. So they, they weren't consulting with the indigenous people. They weren't even being informed in a lot of cases. So we were acting as a conduit in a way. We're getting them the information and enabling them, you know, giving them an opportunity, a platform to speak from. So then we started having our own public hearings, started having our own public meetings. And every time that there was an opportunity to speak to government, every time it came up on an agenda for our regional government or any time it was before the province, then we would make that opportunity so that the hereditary chiefs and the elders and people in the community could speak. And thousands of people responded. The response was incredible, not just among the First Nations people, but also all the rural residents, people in Victoria. You know, it was, it was a, a much-loved park that was under threat in this particular case a few years ago. When they did finally have the final public hearing on the issue, it was the biggest public hearing in Vancouver Island history. It lasted for three days, over a 1,000 people. And you know what was really interesting about that whole struggle was that 
it all meant nothing to the decision makers. They accepted our thousands of phone calls and emails and petitions and postcards, and they accepted us, you know, just cramming into their... They were resigned to that, having hundreds of people come to their meetings and try and speak, and they would just shut it down and carry on. They were all so in favor of it. What we did that was really the tipping point, and people were swearing they would they would commit civil disobedience to stop this. Well, the tipping point came, we hired uh, lawyers again. We got a legal opinion that this was an illegal development, and it was not permitted by the statutes governing land use on that part of the island because it called for spilling hundreds of cabins right alongside a wilderness park. On its face, it was ridiculous, and, and in law, it was actually not permitted. And so we delivered that legal letter at the public hearing, and that was the end of it. So they all voted it down, and uh, that was the end of the proposal. So it sounds like in those earlier years of work that covered a really broad range in terms of the kinds of actions that you took, starting off with direct action, but then moving into participation in consultation processes and getting involved in legal challenges. How did those changes in the actions that you took change the network, or did they? We were choosing the actions based on what we thought would have the best chance of success. So we're sort of modifying our tactics as we go. When we came in with the Bear Mountain, Spotless Mountain campaign, it was already a done deal. So there was no opportunity for us to challenge it in the consultation process or in court. So we went directly to the direct action phase and building a movement around that. When it came to the Wilderness Park, the resort proposal, the subdivision, we were alerted very early on. And so we were able to intervene very early on. And unfortunately, people had the sense afterwards, like, oh, the system works, and so we, you know, we don't have to be so vigilant. And, <laughs> and it only worked because, you know, we, we had to throw so much resources at it. And we're a tiny group, but again, we had the support of thousands of people, and it was tremendous. You know, this wilderness park gets 100,000 visitors a year, and people love it. So it just depends, and we, we're always assessing, you know, what's going to be the best tactic here, you know, and how can we get a lever on these much more powerful, larger adversaries and how can we get a handle on them and use their momentum in a way that will benefit us, that will bring the right outcome. Because we're outcome-oriented. We're not married to any particular set of tactics. We are very much dedicated to getting the outcome that we need. Tell me a little bit about how you have those kinds of conversations and make those kinds of decisions in terms of process. How does the group work? It's a pretty tight group, and it's very informal. <laughs> we're not a member-based organization. I joke that we're the smallest environmental group in D.C. because we really only have about eight members, and they're the directors and former directors. And so it happens on that level. But it also depends a lot on the community alerting us to what's going on and asking for help. Obviously, we can't fight every battle. We can't fight on every hill. But when there is a clear issue and a lot of community support to stop it, we will certainly wade in. So, yeah, those are a lot of the factors, is how much community support is there for a particular campaign or project that we need to take on. Because, like I said, we're a very small group. We depend on volunteers. We don't even have an office, right? We don't even have any paid staff. Well, we have an executive director just recently. And it sounds like in order to have the pretty significant impact that the group has managed to have, despite having small numbers, 
building relationships with people beyond the group must be a pretty central part of what you do. Right. And even before Forest Action Network formed in 2007, a group of us were doing action trainings on Vancouver Island and on the coast and elsewhere, all through BC. Geez, this started in 1999, and we started having these wild earth trainings. This came out of some of us uh, had been involved in direct action campaigns, Great Bear Rainforest, say, with uh, the Ilaho Valley, which is a much smaller project. And we've been trained by the Ruckus Society, which has a, is, a, is an organization, it's a national organization in the States that's dedicated to providing training in things like blockades and tree sits and media, all kinds of things that you need to know for to do action. You know, So this is coming out of sort of the old Earth First tradition. So we trained hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds, you know, probably over a thousand people because it's been so many years now that we've been doing it. We don't call it Wild Earth anymore, but we continue to do the trainings, and we are doing another one actually at the end of March. That's going to be our spring training to stop the pipelines. So we sort of built capacity, I guess, throughout the environmental networks in BC by training these people. They don't all stay and work with us, of course. They go off and found their own groups or they join another group but we've given them skills to use in activism. And then we've connected them to a philosophy and to individuals and to organizations that they can then work with. And it's been incredible. You know, it's been really incredible to see these people going off and and coming back often to join with us and to network with us from their own organizations and so on. In my experience and living in a few different communities and talking to folks who live in lots of other different communities, There's a lot of variation from place to place in environmental networks with how much comfort there is with direct action politics. Do you run into any discomfort or resistance within the the environmental networks on Vancouver Island? Yeah. (laughs) There are groups like the Sierra Club here, which will not participate in direct action. And not only that, but they won't let us talk about it at their events, events that they're sponsoring. So that's been a little bit challenging, but there's no conflict. There hasn't been a lot of pushback recently. But, you know, in in the past, when some of these campaigns got very heated and when people began to do things like sabotage equipment and spike trees, that provoked a really big reaction. At that point, the Wilderness Committee, for example, posted rewards for information leading to the conviction of people involved with this. The rewards were never collected, so they never had to pay, fortunately for them. But there was a lot of condemnation coming from that quarter. We've been able to continue working together. I mean, obviously, we don't advocate for tree spiking. If people want to commit sabotage, that is between them and their conscience. It was a pretty fascinating time back in, say, the summer of 2000 here in British Columbia. So it sounds from some of the things that you've talked about that solidarity with Indigenous people, Indigenous struggles, is really central to the network's politics And of course, that's not always true of environmental groups. So tell me a little bit about why that's important to the network and how that came to be so central to the work that you do. I think indigenous cultures have been the only sustainable cultures on this planet and certainly on this continent. We've been invited to to work on these struggles. It's been a real honor to work with a lot of these groups that we've worked with and still are working with. It's been a real honor to work with the Wet'suwet'en First Nation and the Squamish First Nation and Hachidat First Nation. And they have a claim on the land that we recognize. I don't recognize that Canada is legitimate. I don't recognize that British Columbia is legitimate. 
and there's a lot to back that position up. There's some really great books out right now from BC writers about why it's not legitimate, why you know, it was never, it was not a legitimate war. It was a war, and it was not legitimate. And I don't think that the war has ended. And I know what side I'm on. You know, I'm on the side of the people who have lived here sustainably for thousands of years and who haven't built pipelines and haven't destroyed the environment. And they're still, they're still fighting. So this is the big struggle of our time right now. And it, it seems clear that there is still a war on, and it's, it's a war against pipelines. And this is the direction that we're going. And right now it's peaceful, mostly, for us. You know, indigenous people in other parts of the world, it, it is a shooting war, and they are being killed. You know, they are being rounded up and murdered by Canadian resource companies. So we're, we're complicit in that, you know. The dividends from those companies feed our healthcare system, you know, keep our standard of living comfortable, help pave our roads. We are complicit and we have an obligation to fight alongside people who are being unjustly persecuted and murdered and oppressed. So we're doing that here and we really want to amplify those voices of people in resistance and indigenous people in particular. We're having a, a spring training here, um, which is featuring people from the, the Warrior Alliance here in British Columbia, and they're going to present information about you know, what it's like to be a warrior. How does one become a warrior? What does it mean? How do you behave? How do you approach these problems? Because it's very different, I think, from the way most of us would look at problem solving. <laughs> and uh, we have a lot to learn. We've registered a domain that's the waronpipelines.org, so we're going to have the War on Pipelines online. We didn't start this. You know, we didn't even come up with the phrase. I was tagged with that by some super conservative talk show cable host. Uh, he's screaming about the war on pipelines. Like, hey, we don't even have that here yet. You know, people have always fought to defend the land. You know, and right now in the Philippines, in Mexico, in Gaza, people are attacking pipelines. People are attacking infrastructure. And as well they should, they know what the enemy is. They know what's killing them, and they're going after it. It's a very exciting time right now in British Columbia because they're going to try and start that here. They're going to try and start laying pipe here where everyone has said no, and we'll see what develops from that. But I'm saying right now, you know, if they're calling this a war on pipelines, yeah, we have a war on pipelines. We've got it right here. Tell me about some of the experiences that you've had taking some of these staunch pro-Indigenous politics into settler communities and settler spaces? How have people reacted? How do people react to those politics? It's been really interesting because most people are just very supportive. We've had just tremendous success with getting support for the Unistoten camp blockade, for example. When we Idle No More event on the South Island here attract hundreds and hundreds of people. They're huge. You know, the Salmon Are Sacred event here, you know, we had 5,000 people, which is a, it's a small town. <laughs> this is really major. So what I'm seeing with the settlers that I interact with, they are on side. Maybe they're not going to travel to the front lines, and maybe they're not going to stand on the blockade, but they are going to support it. And this is crucial. Because in any kind of uprising, it's really only 2 or 3% of the population who actually are fighting. But they rely on the people in the communities for all the rest of the support. They rely on them for food and communications and shelter and safe houses and to get away. 
So that's the kind of support that we're also building here in BC. I think everybody can see what direction this is going in. So the more we beat the drum, the more people feel that and get prepared. So that's part of the reason why we're doing our spring training. We, we want to sound the call. They are trying to clear the route for the Enbridge pipeline going west to Kitimat. They're trying to clear the brush and cut the trees. And we're getting ready to respond to that before they put the pipes in the ground. In terms of the camp itself, where is the larger struggle at? They're blockading, but what are the current threats to the camp and the the expectation of where that's going to be going over the next year or whatever? Right now, the camp is not breaking any laws. They are on Crown land, technically, and they're blocking a logging road. It's an active logging road, but they haven't been read the riot act yet. (laughs) So there's been no action to try and criminalize the blockade to tell them that they're trespassing or that they have to cease and desist or anything like that. So what they're doing right now is the police and the authorities and the pipeline companies and so on are watching. They're gathering information. They're looking to see what their options are. And I think it's going to be driven by the corporations. Part of what we're doing is introducing uncertainty into this equation. For these resource companies, it's really important to know they don't have huge profit margins. Their profits are very slim natural gas and bitumen are commodities and the price fluctuates a great deal. Their operating costs also fluctuate. So the return on investment is not secure, really. The only thing that Canada has going for it over some of these other places where pipelines are under attack is that it's supposed to be safe. Canada is supposed to be safe. It's, it's a sure bet. It doesn't pay off a whole lot, but it's a sure thing. So we're here to introduce an element of uncertainty. Pipelines cost billions of dollars to build. The investors are supposed to cover that, and the investors expect to get all of their money back plus a dividend. If we introduce an element of risk into that, then that changes the equation for them. They are less likely to invest. So I think that we've had a real impact on the investment climate in British Columbia. At this point, yeah, they are clearing brush and trees on the outskirts of the pipeline route, not in Unistoten territory which signals to me that they're trying to show their investors that they're doing something. You know, they're not just sitting there because it's been just sitting there for a year. Pacific Trails natural gas pipeline was approved a year ago, and they it's just been sitting. So that doesn't look good. So I think they're trying to, like, you know, do some window dressing. We are very much on the alert for signs that they're going to start in a serious way. So tell me about the Unistoten camp and the work that the Forest Action Network has been doing in support. We were invited to bring our action training in 2012 to Unistoten Camp. So we, we came. They built a beautiful big cabin there. There's this wonderful open space for camping and forest for camping in. What they were doing is they set up a soft blockade where they have closed the bridge to anyone who is trying to do harm or who doesn't respect the First Nations, that they own the land, that they have not given it up, they have not signed a treaty, they've never been conquered or driven from their land. It is still theirs. We brought a whole bunch of volunteers up. We bought a school bus, actually. We started fundraising for this, and we found out it was cheaper to buy a school bus than to rent vehicles to drive up. So we bought a school bus and filled it up with people and supplies and drove it up to the blockade, and we proceeded to have our action training. And people got very energized, very charged up by the nature of the action that was going on and by the strength and resilience and clear-sightedness of the people who are hosting the camp there. And so that relationship continued, and we went ahead and did a whole lot of fundraising for the group. 
so that they could continue to build more cabins and more housing for people and to get supplies. The camp is snowed in almost six months out of the year, so they have snowmobiles and snowshoes, and they are being self-sufficient. They're building a permaculture garden so they can feed themselves and putting in solar panels. <laughs> they have solar panels on the cabin now. So we've been supplying them with food and gear and volunteers on a continuous basis and cash, money. Like I said, we've put out an appeal, and the response is just incredible. We have people all over the world, and people in Australia and Europe, and, and a whole lot of people in like New York City and Toronto who are donating. Like I said, we're a tiny group. We don't have an advertising budget. All of the funds go to the projects. And so we've been able to sustain and grow this resistance. It's been a really wonderful honor to work with these people. What would you say to folks in other parts of the country who aren't necessarily as physically close to where the Unistoten camp is happening if they want to be supportive, to act in ways that support the Unistoten? People are doing all kinds of things to support the Unistoten camp. What's happening now is that all of these little groups are springing up. You know, it's just ad hoc. It's just like a few neighbors or roommates or friends, and they'll just have some very modest event, like, you know, pancakes, not pipelines or kitchen parties and things like that. And sometimes just challenging their neighbors, say, I'm giving $400, we match that sort of thing. So this is springing up all over the place. One of these Pancake Not Pipelines events, 500 people came. And I think they raised $5,000 or something. On a larger level, bigger picture level, we've been doing some divestment campaigns. So going along with the scaring off the investors, we've also been going to some of, for example, there's a, a very progressive environmental type credit union Fan City Credit Union, they'd make environmental grants and so on. They were invested in the tar sands. They were invested through their one of their investment subsidiaries in their supposedly sustainable investments. They were invested in Suncor and other tar sands companies. They've since divested because of our actions. You know, we're we're members of that credit union. And these are the kinds of things that people uh, through their churches, through their union funds, through their pension funds. They can be asking those questions. You can be going to your banks. You know, for people who have funds like that, you can go to your banks and put pressure on. People can help spread the word, of course, in, in hundreds of ways. And by visiting our website, we have all kinds of information there, wildcoast.ca. And by contacting me, I can send information. And, I, you know, the pipelines are going in every direction. So practically across the country, everybody has their own local battles to fight. And I really want to encourage people to fight those battles. You know, don't lay down and let them run over you because uh, it's really rewarding when you win or even if you can stall them for long enough that you keep the door open, keep that place protected as long as we can. You have been listening to my interview with Zoe Blunt of the Vancouver Island Community Forest Action Network, or VicFan. To learn more about their work, go to wildcoast.ca. That's wildcoast.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thanks.